Psst. Hey, you. Want access to exclusive secret ops intel? Check out the link in the description. The more the world goes remote or hybrid, uh, the more important it is to get people together in person strategically at its core. Like we are still humans. Uh, and until you know, we're all part robot um, or until robots take over the world, like we are going to have this innate desire to connect with others. Uh, and that is going to happen in person. Welcome to Secret Ops, the podcast uncovering the world of operations one episode at a time. I'm your host, Ariana Cafone, and today's guest is Jared Kleinert, the founder and CEO of Offsite, a company that helps businesses to plan team offsites. Now, operators, if you're like me, you have definitely been involved in offsites, if not planning the entire thing from end to end. And as much as I love an offsite, I also know how much hard work it is to put in the effort to make it really fantastic. Now, Jared, this is his expertise. Some other things that he has from his background, he's a TED speaker, a three-time award-winning author, and he was also voted as USA Today's most connected millennial because he's helped organize hundreds of events for uh, over 30,000 attendees. So big or small, he's experienced it, led it, facilitated it, given talks about it, and we're going to learn a lot from him today. So let's jump in. Jared, thank you so much for coming on to Secret Ops, especially because we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, offsites. What is an offsite? Why do we do offsites? Pro tips from the expert himself. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we dive into all of my really granular questions, because you know I'm going to nerd out, <laughs> let's start with your journey into getting here today. So how did you find yourself founding a company and leading a company that just essentially does end-to-end -end of everything with an offsite? Talk us through it. Like all great companies, it started during the big pandemic of 2020. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, offsite is a, a pandemic company for sure. Uh, about a year into the pandemic, started working on what became Offsite. Uh, I was sort of betting on a few different trends. The first is that I hypothesized most companies were going remote or hybrid. And I felt that way before the pandemic as well. Uh, I just think pandemic pushed us into the future 10 or 20 years. But I thought everyone was going remote or hybrid. Uh, as a byproduct of that, I believed every company would plan an exponential number of Offsites. Uh, offsites have been planned for decades now, uh, even for office first companies. Kind of the word came from going off site, uh, away from your office, uh, mostly reserved for like executive teams or maybe a sales team that outperformed and got a fancy trip out of it. Uh, and then the third bet I was making uh, or a realization was that there was no software to make offsite planning easier. And from previous experience, I knew that planning offsite sucked. So it's like, yes, we should have <laughs> software to make this easier. Um, and that's typically a good way to start any software company is if you can make something suck less, then it might be a good company. And so uh, those are sort of the the bets. The reason I came to think uh, that those things would happen is because I had a decade of offsite related experiences before the pandemic happened. About 12 years ago, I was one of the earliest employees at a company called 15.5, uh, which is one of the leaders in employee engagement and performance management software today, uh, a few hundred people, distributed team, um, 
but they were remote, remote first, I get like 12, 13 years ago. Uh, so I attended Offsites as an employee uh, at a company that used their own Offsites to build their own award-winning culture. Uh, and then I had a seven-year run of being a speaker, author, consultant, uh, right? I was able to do some TED and TEDx talks that led to a lot of corporate keynotes. So I was speaking at Offsites uh, that led to facilitating executive team retreats in particular um, because various marketing teams in the Fortune 1000 wanted to learn how to market to millennials. And Can I actually ask, yeah. having been a speaker and a facilitator in those settings, what would you say are the biggest differences and the biggest challenges in switching with those roles? I, I think I was a good speaker, but I was probably more on the content side, which lends well to facilitation. Uh, facilitation is mostly about the content and the outcomes of a meeting. Like it doesn't matter how entertaining you are other than to maybe get people out of their ruts or get them to uh, engage with each other, uh, pay attention. But it's really about the outcomes in a in an executive team meeting and what you're actually benefiting as a result of bringing in a facilitator. So uh, mm. different skill sets, but sort of learned by uh, a trial by fire. Uh, and so the last offsite experience I had uh, before starting the company was I ran summits for entrepreneurs for about four years before the pandemic, <laughs> uh, bringing together like 20 to 40 people uh, at a time for three days. Uh, did that for almost four years. So I ran 14 of these meeting of the minds summits uh, and basically planned an offsite uh, end to end. It seems like a common thread is is human connection and communication for all of these experiences you have, because you've also written books as well, speaking, facilitating, now literally rethinking how to help others present and facilitate offsites. That seems to be just like a, a magnet for you. What do you think draws you to that? What do you think it is about, I guess, connection and communication that gets you, I don't know, into that world? I think it was a chosen zone of genius and then something I invested in at a very early age. Uh, my, my zone of genius is bringing together people and ideas to accomplish bigger things for society. And uh, the only way I even got to understanding what a zone of genius was, how to articulate it, what it might be for me, um, was working with the founder and CEO of 15.5. Uh, his name is David Hassel. And... I was very fortunate to just cold email him when I was 16, offered to work unpaid in exchange for his mentorship, ended up spending two years at this startup, which you know now is a client of ours. Dave is an investor in Offsite uh, and, and is really the one of the origins for all my work now. But you know, I guess I had some uh, choice in the matter of emailing him and then lots of hard work, uh, Definitely. listening to whatever advice I got. But uh, I don't know a lot of 16 year olds that would just cold email somebody and be like, yo, I'll work for free. Can you can you yeah. into your world? Yeah, I just sort of read about David uh, after a, a negative mentor experience. Uh, the article was about him being the most connected man you don't know in Silicon Valley, uh, meaning that he had all these connections to amazing athletes and individuals like Tim Ferriss and, you know, different startup founders. Those dinner parties, like people look up to him, but yeah, uh, really, really, it's just in the right place, at the right time. Uh, learned from David about the power and benefits of networking, community building, etc., and then uh, decided to double down on that uh, because I wasn't particularly uh, interested in learning technical skills. Like maybe at sixteen, I could have learned how to become an engineer and coding and all that, but I was sort of betting that. I would get farther by learning social skills than 
learning technical skills. Hopefully that's going to work too, because you know now we have ChatGPT that could code for you. Uh, <laughs> I feel like it's advantageous. You know, yeah. I think back in the day, I grew up with a lot of like my grandparents. So a lot of it was about human connection and talking over coffee and, you know, like coffee cake. And it was very face to face. You had to learn how to talk to adults, to kids, to anybody. That was kind of how I grew up. Same with my husband. And now you sort of see generationally, there is that gap. Like there are some people that don't have those social skills in that way because we are so digital first. And that is quite interesting actually for thinking about offsites <laughs> because you have a lot of people that are meeting and building relationships digitally and then they're meeting for the first time in person. So I guess let's go into the trifecta because I think this is a perfect transition. So trifecta and operations, people, process, technology, fueled by data. Um, when it comes to the people part of putting all of the pieces together for an offsite, I guess let's start with how do you bridge the gap in types of people and how they function, how they get engaged? Like, how do you even approach that? Uh, you know, you, you got to pick the right people to join. Uh, we do advise in thinking through maybe a cadence of offsites. So do you want to have an all hands meeting once a year, quarterly executive team retreats, maybe two to four department level offsites throughout the year? Sort of what's what structure are you putting around your program for offsites? And that's depending on how big your company is, uh, if it's fully remote or if it's hybrid, like how distributed your team is, what sort of budget you can allocate or, or are willing to allocate. It's a lot of factors, but uh, yeah, we can advise clients on that. Um, but really it's about all the facilitation points. So your job mm. to get the right people in the room, our job to help make sure that that interaction and those experiences are going to be as uh, high ROI as possible and as engaging as possible. But there is that need, like once they feel what's happening within those offsites, they want to know when the next one is. They want to understand the next time they can come together and, and have that sort of thinking process or facilitation. It's a little bit different than their day to day. Do yeah. you find that people have, that most people when it comes to an offsite gravitate towards wanting more? Do you have some people that tend to want to like do one a time a year, four times a year? Like what do you see in your world? I would say most employees are opting for more offsites than less. And then companies are realizing the benefits of creating some structure around a program of offsites. Uh, a lot of our clients have been through a pretty tough downturn in the last year and a half, two years. So they're kind of also coming out of that and figuring out what they can and can't afford. Um, but if if there's the ability to invest in it, most companies are trying to have their employees be at a company offsite once a quarter uh, would be ideal. And that could be, again, like you attend an all hands meeting once a year. And then if you're on the sales team, you might do a sales kickoff in Q1. You might, you know, hopefully you're a top performer and you get to go to a presence club event in Q2. And then maybe there's like another like mid-year check-in uh, and then you have your all hands and you know, late Q3, early Q4. So you get to go to four offsites a year. Uh, this is something that Airbnb has rolled out uh, where Brian Chesky back in April 2022 was like, Airbnb is going to be fully remote now. And if you work here, here's some, you know, seven tenants of how we're going to do this. Uh, subject to change, of course. But I think number four out of his tweet thread was that you'd be going to lots of offsites. Uh, and he sort of pegged this idea of 
uh, once a quarter or more uh, as a frequency for going to various offsites at the company. Um, and then I also read recently the uh, founder and CEO of Dropbox, um, Drew Houston or Houston. Um, Houston is a very New York thing to say. <laughs> it was. It was very New York. Uh, <laughs> let's go with uh, let's go with Houston. Give Texas some love. Yeah. You know, Drew Houston <laughs> slash Houston um, has, I guess, this unofficial 90-10 rule where he says uh, 90% of your time working at Dropbox should be remote and 10% should be at a company offsite. And so that equates to uh, you know, 20-something business days a year. Uh, if you sort of like take out weekends mm-hmm. and holidays and then you so to do the math, it's like, oh, that means you're probably at an offsite, you know, once a quarter uh, for three to five days at a time. So that's uh, a magic wand scenario, you know, is, is probably three to five days at a time once a quarter. Uh, but it really depends on the makeup of your team uh, and the size of your company as well. And so a company like 15.5 today, you know, a few hundred employees, they might have 20 to 30 offsites that they plan, but there's like one all hands a year. Quarterly executive team gangs or like even board meetings. Exactly. Uh, and then you have product teams, engineering teams, marketing teams sort of doing their own thing. Um, but hopefully, you know, you're giving a playbook internally, uh, giving tools so that people know what they can spend, what sessions they should be running. Uh, and no one does this particularly well. Uh, not even the pioneers. <laughs> yeah, talk to us about yeah. that. This is more the process part. What you know? What do you think people really get wrong about playing an offsite? And like you said, like how do you reorient their playbook based on best practices that you've learned over you know the decade plus that you've been doing this? Yeah, process. I, I think we're all just figuring it out on the spot and and starting to come to some um, basic frameworks. Uh, there are some companies that do this really well. Uh, some of the pioneers in the space that inspired Offsite were Automatic, which owns WordPress uh, and Tumblr and a few other companies like that. Um, they're now one of our corporate investors, which is cool as well. Uh, and so they have 1,200 to 1,500 employees now. Uh, and so they've built playbooks, but some of those playbooks have broken as they've scaled. Uh, <laughs> but you know, they, they do have a, a company wiki internally Uh, And that company wiki will share policies around sort of what you can spend per day, per attendee, um, maybe some communications that you could send out uh, around these offsites uh, and and so on and so forth. So they do a really good job of that. GitLab is another example, uh, pioneering remote first company. I believe they're the first fully remote company to be go to go public. and they also have just a very extensive public company wiki uh, on everything, uh, including various offsite formats. And uh, that has worked for them. Uh, I think you're not really doing all hands meetings at their size, but you're doing maybe regional meetups of a few hundred people at a time. So I think running a, a doing a company wiki is probably a good idea for any remote or hybrid team uh, in Notion or wherever. Uh, I'm sure you have other episodes on that. I love a wiki. I'm uh, a, I adore a wiki. Yeah. Where where do you end up taking that? Because like obviously you've got some c- companies that have best practices with offsites, what they do, how they do it. Let's say you lovingly get a client that you don't have that established framework, or maybe it's kind of a hot mess. How do you start to reframe what an offsite should be about? What's the spirit? What's the structure? Like how do you how do you begin that process? Yeah, e- even with the companies that have like internal wikis, I think there is a an opportunity right now to 
educate people on what an offsite is and an opportunity for us to put technology in place, you know, your third, your third piece of this, uh, to figure out over time, what are better processes and maybe like who are the right people or how do you better, uh, have those folks interact with each other. Uh, and so we're now developing some data as we're working uh, across hundreds of companies. Uh, and so we're starting to come ac across these frameworks, like, uh, you will likely spend two to $3,000 per person per offsite. Uh, so when you're thinking about an annual planning fra framework and budgeting, um, we've now come to understand, you know, like the 30 line items that, you know, are going to take up 98% of offsites. Uh, maybe there's like a straggler here or there that has a very unique, uh, line item in their budget that they need to add. Um, but we can, we, we have built templates. Maybe we could put in the show notes of like, you know, how to build a budget for this. And so, yeah, we're coming across some budgeting frameworks. We're coming across you know, a framework of, of cadence, uh, and then, you know, sort of all the factors that go into that. Uh, and then really trying to educate people on, so why are you having an offsite in the first place? And so there mm -hmm. are business objectives tied to certain offsites, uh, like strategic planning. So you might have, uh, an executive team retreat once a quarter to do your quarterly planning, uh, do a retro of the past quarter, you know, go into the next quarter and find your OKRs. Um, we're actually starting to build templates around certain operations playbooks, right? Like there's the scaling up methodology, there's uh, entrepreneurial operating system. Uh, and some of those books have like basic offsite frameworks in them. And so we can actually like, go a step further, create templates around that, uh, and then help clients like find the right place to do it build out the entire agenda, take care of all the logistics, et cetera. Uh, Which like, I just want to note here, that is no easy task. <laughs> it is, it looks deceptively easy. Cause like, listen, the the experience is you, you get to an offsite, everything's arranged. You have the hotel, you have your food, you have your agenda, you have your meeting room, you have your screen to present on, you have your deck, you have all of these things. You've got note cards, right? All of those little pieces have to be coordinated, defined. It's like, it's so crazy if you haven't planned one yourself, how much all of those details actually play in. Even welcome yeah. kits. I have some fantastic <laughs> people at my team. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm I sure. Do, I do this for clients day in and day out. Like as, as we're recording this uh, in early November, we have three offsites happening. Uh, around the country right now this week and barely knew which clients they were for or what's going on at the offsites, which is a great thing because then I could focus on the- Yeah, that means that something's going well. Um, yeah, the team, the team crushes it um, and we put processes in place on how to plan offsites for clients. Um, we're starting to share more and more of that publicly as, as content marketing and thought leadership. Uh, but then also we have great engineers that are trying to turn that into software uh, bit by bit. And so- yeah, talk to us about that—the technology piece that you're building out with the team. Yeah, I mean, I, I envision a world where we can have this be fully automated, or, or sort of create the Canva of the space where anyone can plan an offsite on their own uh, and leverage all these best practices, uh, just like you would use Canva to do some design work on your own. Uh, or if you ultimately want to hire like an offsite planner through us, uh, or hire an event producer through our marketplace, uh, then. We're giving them all the tools to take care of you, uh, just like designers will go into Canva and do work on behalf of a client. So uh, there's a whole ecosystem of software we can build for this. The first piece of software we decided to build, uh, which is unique to other competitors, uh, is we decided to build a marketplace uh, where you can find essentially every vendor that you need to plan an offsite. 
Uh, and the first vendor that we really focused on was your venue, uh, which is typically a hotel, yes. a resort, yes. uh, <laughs> eating space providers. Uh, we decided to start there because that was the hardest, that was one of the biggest friction points to get started and one of the hardest parts of planning an offsite. And it dictates about two thirds of your budget. Uh, and so we decided to focus on that. Uh, and when That's I was a running, beast to focus on too. Yeah. I mean, when I was running Meeting of the Minds, I had this experience personally where I was trying to figure out where to bring clients and I tried big Airbnbs. I tried photography studios. I tried uh, hotels. I tried uh, boutique mom and pop hotels and I tried like Fairmont properties. Uh, and you know, they all had different ways of working. Like the contracts were ridiculously challenging. And, and you know, mm -hmm. even if you wanted to book with them, like it was very painful to find the right contact uh, through their website and then to you know, talk to their sales manager and then a separate person for food and beverage, like just a, a total mess. So uh, we basically built Airbnb for offsite venues to start. Uh, we've partnered now with a few hundred hotels all around the world uh, and you can make an account at offsite.com. Then you could click into any of the profiles, check out all the pretty pictures and all the basic information like meeting space and uh, you know, the, the room sizes and number of restaurants, distance from airport. And then within 24 hours, we expect hotels to get back to you with a detailed proposal, uh, and with a 20% or more discount, um, because you're booking through offsite. So that's been really cool. Uh, and you know, anyone can use it. Um, it's getting better sort of week by week as our, our sprint cycles are happening. Uh, so just adding in every category over time, like photographers, videographers, um, we do all this for clients now. We're just sort of turning it into software. Uh, so we'll, we'll be on that train for a while because building software is hard and building a marketplace is an entire business. That's like Airbnb, Thumbtack. They're all marketplaces. Those are gigantic businesses. Um, I do think it's- Well, and I was going to ask you, yeah. like, what do you think has been in that first stage? What do you think has been the hardest or the biggest learning curve in starting the marketplace feature of this? Yeah, well- we we had a bigger vision uh, at the very beginning. And so I think one of the biggest lessons learned for company building and for building software is really to narrow scope and, and focus. I mean, the the very or originating story vision for Offsite was to sort of do the end-all be-all software platform, but to also have physical Offsite campuses uh, all around the country. And so at one point, I was under contract for 20 acres of land in upstate New York and was going to do, <laughs> oh basically build a hotel. Um, you know, and it was like meeting with general contractors and like, you know, city officials in Bethel, which is like two hours outside of New York. That's where Woodstock took place. Fun fact. Um, but thankfully, I got out of that lease and just focused on software. Uh, and then with software, like we uh, will ultimately build some offsite planning tools, which is where some of our competitors have decided to go. Um, so I envision things like an agenda builder feature, like how can we can turn that into an algorithm, um, a budget builder feature, like we can help you build a budget based on what's in your agenda and where you're going and like pull data. Um, like you don't need chat GPT for this stuff. Like you just need to build a, a good old fashioned algorithm. Um, but yeah, and then there's a few other features I can envision there, but, uh, as easy as it sounds to say that, like that's an entire company as well. So we, we just decided to focus on the marketplace, Absolutely. build that out. Um, and then within the marketplace, like there's a lot of things that have popped up that are surprisingly difficult. Um, the main thing 
is the RFP process between a user and a hotel. Uh, and just there's so many different edge cases that can come up. For example, if you're planning a offsite for 100 people, but your executives want nicer rooms uh, and then you want your, you know, like executive assistant or your chief of staff to show up a day or two early to sort of, you know, lay out the lay everything out. Like, how do you automate uh, different room types and, you know, different attendee mm -hmm. counts uh, in what should be an automated process back and forth? Uh, and so that the, those edge cases pr propose uh, a lot of interesting challenges. And then at some point would like to make this fully automated, like real time pricing, real time availability. But hotels uh, have a very antiquated system around like the different booking platforms they use. It's not like Expedia or some of those other travel providers where you can get real time pricing and availability on uh, individual rooms. Like once you go to eight rooms or so on most of those platforms, uh, it becomes a different type of booking rather than just like an individual room or multiple rooms. You're a room block and then they're trying to sell you meeting space and food and beverage and AV. And so I do think at some point you can sort of fully automate this. So you can like go on uh, a website, be able to book or a 20 person room block with meeting space with AV, get the price in real time, book it. Um, that, that day is not today, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're figuring out all the different reasons why that's not possible and then trying to solve for that. Um, and so that's pretty interesting. It's and then just getting, getting data around like where people want to go, uh, what places, what types of places they want to go to and starting to sort of build our supply around that has been super fascinating. Uh, so yeah, just endless lessons to learn. Endless lessons. I, I think, so operations tends to become a catch-all within businesses because oftentimes we're spanning across the business, right? So anytime that there is a larger company initiative, we tend to have our hand in it in some way, shape, and form, which is why I've gotten involved a lot in offsites. Um, not necessarily because I want to, but because it's kind of de facto in that operations umbrella. And I'm just imagining operators listening to this, <laughs> thinking like, oh my God, I never want to research hotels again, or oh my God, I never want to research spaces again. This in itself, I guess what people don't understand in planning an offsite is the amount of time it takes to do all these things. Oh, you have, you have an executive assistant, you have a chief of staff, head of people, head of ops yeah. listening to this, screaming in their car like, yes, <laughs> yeah, sorry about it, you're so right. Like, I just want to apologize on behalf of CEOs everywhere that <laughs> that you have become the catch-all for offsite planning. Um, I, I would not be surprised at all if this became a full-time role at various companies in the future. Uh, I've seen a couple like head of remotes uh, and, and sort of roles around that, uh, but I would not be surprised whatsoever if there was a dedicated offsite planner internally. Um, and some of the corporates that we try to sell into, I've seen like a head of events or an internal events team, but I would argue that even the, the kind of events they used to plan or plan now are fundamentally different than an offsite, uh, especially yeah. if you're fully remote, hybrid, you know, or very distributed. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> I'm working to make it easier for you. you know? <laughs> well, this is also when you were talking, we were talking about the cadence, you know, annual versus quarterly versus, you know, all team versus, you know, individual teams. What inevitably happens that I have found is then people are like, I love seeing everybody face to face. When's our next meetup? When's our next hangout? And then all of a sudden you're 
we're like now get, doing social gatherings and like me as an operator, like I just want to automate things and like make people's lives easier. I don't want to be planning events. And, and I do think you're right because as resource has been taken off of rent, being in office, that can be allocated now towards different roles. Like like you talked about having someone that just oversees offsites or just oversees these more social components of work that are very important for employee retention, for communication, for alignment. Like it, it might seem frivolous, you know, at surface level, but it's actually not. I feel like I feel like you were in the pitch meetings with me when I was VCs <laughs> about why offsite should exist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's because, you know, I've seen it though, and and maybe you know, you can speak to this too. I have been in a room where nobody has seen each other face to face ever. And they've been working together for a year, two years. And you inevitably have that moment that's like, I thought you were taller. I thought you were shorter. You know, like, oh my gosh. Like, and then all of a sudden you start to see a bond happening that you can't almost verbalize what's going on, but it happens in all the cues and the body language and the humor and the jokes and all the in-between moments that you don't have necessarily baked into a virtual environment. And that's where maybe I'd like to go behind the scenes uh, talking a little bit about like, you know, what people don't know. And I think part of this is virtual versus in-person. You know, the work that you're doing, obviously you're building this marketplace to help make this easier, more virtual, more digital. But the offsites that you're planning are in-person. Why do you think being in-person for these is so important? Yeah, I think it goes back to the the why you would plan an offsite. Uh, and so we, we kind of touched on strategic planning, which is very aligned with what a lot of ops folks will have a hand in, uh, in the sort of rhythm of business conversations. Um, there's team building, which is sort of a, a phrase thrown around, but you know, that is an important reason for having offsites, uh, as well. There's increasing cross department collaboration. There's employee retention. There's, uh, employee alignment. Uh, there's sort of innovation and brainstorming, which might be really good for marketing teams or even like engineering and product teams. Uh, there's all, you know, there, there's like client facing events where you might want to do uh, a multi-day event for VIPs that you work with uh, or customer conferences. So there's all these different reasons to have an offsite. Uh, and most of those things are just better to be done in person versus virtual. Like that's kind of the answer at the end of the day uh, uh yeah that that's at, at its core like we are still humans uh and until you know we're all part robot um or until robots <laughs> take over the world like we are going to have this innate desire to connect with others uh and that is going to happen in person uh and actually you know i think you would you and i would agree like the more the world goes remote or hybrid uh the more important it is to get people together in person Absolutely. strategically uh, and so I, I believe there's so many benefits to remote work um, at the individual lifestyle standpoint for employees uh, and, and sort of access to opportunities for employers. It's access to talent around the world. Uh, there's productivity benefits if you're doing it right, um, forces you to communicate better as a leader, to you know, build a company wiki and like get people on the same page. Um, but there are challenges to running a remote or hybrid company because it's, it's really just around managerial challenges, like managing people's hard, uh, managing teams are hard. So hard. All the problems so that make it hard are just harder in a remote or hybrid setting because we're all still figuring out how to do that. And even even the pioneering ones in the space have only done it for 10, 15, 20 years uh, relative mm. to like thousands of years That's of in-person work. So 
Uh, virtual events have their place. Like we do maybe a quarterly happy hour sort of thing. Um, but the why behind that might be to celebrate uh, a new employee being added to the team, or it might be to give everyone a break uh, if we've all been working so hard. Um, those are my, the sort of the lower barrier of why <laughs> to have a virtual event. Um, but for the important company building foundational elements of your culture, those are all going to drive to in-person experiences. Uh, and if not, then you either should just have a culture where it's very clearly outlined that this is async. Um, we never have email or we, we never have meetings. Uh, we do this in a certain way and it's, it's very transactional, but some people like that and could be very high, uh, highly productive. And then, you know, that's going to be 2% of companies. So then 98% of companies yeah. are going to be, you know, with humans and uh, people that want to see each other uh, that may otherwise feel lonely at home. Uh, if they don't get to see colleagues or have human interaction. They want to benefit from uh, their own ways of working, you know, being able to access opportunity around the world, uh, all the benefits, but like they're, they also crave that human connection. And if you don't give it to them for long enough, like they're one click away from starting to look for another job. Uh, and totally. you know, that's going to get more expensive to, you know, replace folks and train them up versus investing in offsites where, you know, at minimum you can retain top talent for another six months a year because they have like a, a fun trip to Miami to look forward to. Uh, in the winter, uh, or, you know, you can actually build upon those connections and like during the harder moments when they're feeling lonely or something's happening at, at home that they need to vent about, like they can message a trusted colleague, like feel a kinship with someone else, uh, hop on video. And it's, it's a much you know, better experience because there's more trust, there's mm -hmm. more intimacy. A point I wanted to touch base on because, you know, you're talking about it helps with teamwork and collaboration and communication and, and all of these things that I cannot stress are insanely important. But the problem that I have found is how do you quantify <laughs> a return on investment for this type of offsite? And this is where, especially a lot of the times when I'm, I'm working with small to mid-sized businesses, they might not have had an offsite ever yet, right? Like a lot of them have been founded in the last couple of years after 2020, this is still a virtual land. So how do you and your team approach talking about the return on investment? Like how, how do you quantify those things that almost feel unquantifiable? I think the cut and dry way to do it, if you've never done it before, would be to look at what you previously spent on office space, you know, in office lunches or snacks and all the associated costs, and then think about reinvesting it into a cadence of offsites. And what you'll find is you are likely saving money by planning offsites um, versus what you used to pay sort of per head to have an office. It was like some companies, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be unreasonable to be spending $500 to $1,000 per person on office space every month uh, when you consider rent, you consider furniture, you consider um, utilities, uh, all that. It's so costly. Yeah. It's so Lunch, costly. Lunches, snacks. Uh, oh my gosh, yeah. The you know happy hours, events you might have done. So you're spending, you know, bef in the before times, you're probably spending ten dollars to $20,000 per person annually on office related expenses. And now you have a world where you could spend 
two to $3,000 per person per offsite. Uh, and even if they go to the quarterly offsite, like maybe you're investing, you know, 8,000 a year um, per employee, you're pocketing uh, 15, 20% of what you were spending otherwise, uh, while having this amazing perk to leverage in recruiting, uh, which has, you know, a, a positive ROI. If you want to calculate that, um, you're getting better team members. Uh, you're getting people that maybe you've been able to localize what you're paying them. Uh, you know, it, it, whether or not that's a good practice is like another person's episode and expertise. Uh, but you know, there, there's probably we'll other get people ops in here. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, there's probably other savings to be had there. Uh, and then that that's just brass tacks. Like then we could start talking about all the things that are a little harder to measure, but things like an employer net promoter score and is that increasing over time. That is something you can track uh, by doing surveys. Um, and we recommend our clients do that before an offsite and then after an offsite. And then if they have a cadence of offsites, they can sort of do it regularly and see over time if their employer net promoter score is going up. Uh, we also recommend various like connectedness to colleagues scores and like connectedness to company scores. Uh, and I'm sure you have your own employee uh, metrics that you can bake into this. You can use tools like 15.5 or Lattice or Coltramp uh, and layer this in, but that can start giving you a, a set of data over time to think about the ROI of offsites as well. Um, then you get to some of the sort of higher end stuff, like how do you measure trust and intimacy and like whether that goes up or not. Um, yeah. There is like uh, sentiment analysis tools that Slack has uh, and so I haven't played around with it too much, but we, we use a thing called Geekbot for like daily asynchronous tokens. Yep. Uh, and I know that they have like a, a, they, they have the ability to read Slack messages and give you like <laughs> emojis on like how happy or, uh, sad or, you know, normal your team is. Uh, and so I know that like very, uh, like there are some sentiment analysis things you can utilize. Um, I'm sure other softwares have, have layered onto that. Uh, and so there's also like, you can see how many messages were sent like two months before an offsite and then two months afterwards. Um, I'm sure there's ways to see like collective meeting minutes in Zoom or a huddle, uh, like a Slack huddle, um, or there's like a new company called Roam that, you know, you can sort of check that, check all that data out. In. Uh, and so I think over time, like you can track those sort of things as well. Uh, and then like if, you know, people trust each other more, like it, it's probably going to be palpable and visible. Uh, if everyone's more aligned on company culture, that's going to be apparent. Uh, and, and hopefully you'll hit your KPIs. Um, it's hard to know if you would have like better OKRs from an in-person executive team retreat versus a virtual executive team retreat. But I think most of us would probably bet that you'll get better debate and discourse and, you know, understanding so. from an in-person Offsite and like, what I've seen with virtual yeah. OKRs, like deciding on virtual OKRs versus in-person OKRs, is that the OKRs become 
editable <laughs> a lot more frequently yeah. versus when you when you set up OKRs in person, I found there to be pretty hot discussion about them, right? Because you have a bun bunch of experts coming in with their expertise saying, no, I think this is what it should be. And you hash out a lot of those things that maybe virtually doesn't really work. So then what happens is the next quarter, they're shifted a little bit, then they're shifted again. And then everybody's kind of like, what are we aiming towards here? Like, I'm confused. What are, you know, what are we going towards? But that's, again, that's like a small kind of case study with the clients that I've been working with. Yeah. You could even think about the, like, why, why connect virtually versus in person at all? You know, like virtual mm -hmm. connections have a lot of benefit for saving time and money like we didn't have to record this in person and each take time out of our day to travel and commute and money to do that um same with a salesperson hopping on a call or on zoom like they don't have to travel like my grandfather did you know uh totally in the country to do like wholesale jewelry uh you know uh <laughs> shout out grandpa isn't that crazy to think about yeah. i just think about encyclopedias that used to come door to door and, you know, silence, like, I mean, we had one of those, but like, it's just so much has changed so quickly. And then what are the benefits of in person? It's, it's like, exactly. it's being able to humanize someone that leads to building trust. You know, even one uh, interaction with a client in person today can endear you for six, 12 months. Um, and that's true of a, a team member as well. Like, it, it's very refreshing for me to engage with my employees uh, whenever I get to see them. And like, I will go out of my way to go meet new employees in person uh, and you know we plan offsites quarterly uh, and it, it's for no other reason than just you know build a, a deep meaningful relationship uh, so yeah, that you can do all the tactical stuff later on virtually asynchronous uh, I would say the other main reason is like if you're having a difficult conversation like you're probably gonna want to do that in person like if you're breaking up with someone you should probably do that in person <laughs> versus yep. a call. Yep. Uh, you know, or, or you know, like your doctor is going to tell you some news in person, better for better or worse. And like, you know, ideally, if not, they'll call like the last thing they're going to do is text you or email you like that's the worst uh, because totally. you can't pick up on body language, voice indentations, all the things that lead to, you know, deep connections. And so if that all happens in person, like the same is going to be true at a company, like if you're having, you know, challenging decisions at the board level or you know, at a leadership level about what your OKR should be for the next quarter or like what your plan should be for the next year, you're probably going to have to do get out in person and, you know, ultimately come to an agreement on what's best for the company. And that's just more uh, efficient in person and, and you know, will lead to less editable uh, OKRs that people will OKRs. follow. Yeah. Can you tell that drives me just slightly crazy? Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess last question in this section before we, we do a little wrap up is if the operators are listening and they're like, Jaron, I'm always planning these damn things and I just, I just don't know. I don't want to anymore. <laughs> what would you say is the greatest pro tip of offsite planning that you can give them outside of just working with you all? Yeah, I was going to say, go to offsite.com. Yeah, just, just go. <laughs> What would you say is something that they should just kind of put in their back pocket when they're at that stage that they've got to plan the offsite? It's on their plate. What's a pro tip to give them? I would try and templatize this as much as possible. Uh, and you think of it as sort of building blocks. Uh, like you're you're going to need certain capabilities in a hotel or in a venue. And so you can come to understand what that is going to be for your company or for the certain types of offsites that you're planning. Uh, and then you can sort of 
programmatically ask for that with venues. Uh, and so you'll come to know that you need a certain number of rooms in your room block. You're going to need a certain number of nights. You're going to need a you know, one big meeting space and then three breakout rooms and this basic AV package. Uh, and then you can just sort of like keep that as a template. Uh, and then that makes it easy to go message various venues. I would recommend as another pro tip, you know, negotiating uh, and planning ahead. Definitely. Uh, those are two separate uh, pro tips, but um, <laughs> planning ahead will help you. Get three you for the price of one. <laughs> yeah. Planning ahead will help you with negotiating because you may not have dates locked in or even a city locked in. And then you could message various venues and have them give you the best rates possible on their calendar. Uh, you can also pin hotels and venues against each other um, and ultimately save more money. Uh, and so if you have that template, it'll just make that back and forth a lot easier and help you plan ahead because you know exactly what you need. Same with an agenda. Um, not that you're going to have the same agenda every single time, but you're going to have some travel in and travel out time. Uh, and so those are building blocks you can replicate uh, and adjust based on how far people have to travel. Um, you're going to have probably some sort of welcome dinner or welcome activity. You're going to have your morning set up. Uh, we recommend like an optional workout in the morning and then time for breakfast and then some sort of uh, icebreaker and like intention setting. And then, you know, we, we sort of have a whole way to build the templates uh, that we give publicly and then like use those to plan offsites, even like ending each day on a high note um, and then ending your entire offsite on a high note so that if and when people are, you know, debating on an important issue totally. or things get heated, like there's a way to cool off and like enjoy each other's company and then like ends the offsite on a bang so that, you know, they think back of, to the experience fondly, you know, two, three months afterwards. Um, so all these building blocks, even like, uh, you know, one that might be overlooked is adding lots of flex time into the agenda. So that if you're running late on a session, like you're not ruining yeah. the rest of the agenda. Um, also, like people might get exhausted. So uh, giving them the opportunity mm -hmm. to have unstructured social time with each other. That's typically when some of the best conversations happen um, is organically. Uh, but that also like let people take a nap or call home or um go do a workout or, or something like that or explore wherever you're traveling to. Maybe people don't have the opportunity to travel uh, and and this is a cool experience for them. So it's a lot of building blocks. So uh, just like automatic GitLab uh, offsite has done, if you try and template these experiences, it'll save you a lot of time uh, and it'll be easier to even like delegate this to team leaders or to other people planning an offsite at your company um, because you just be like, Here's the playbook. Do it. Don't ask me to do it. I'm busy. Totally. <laughs> totally. That's uh, that's a lesson I've learned. Also, the point that you made about having flex time. My gosh. Um, I've learned that lesson the hard way. You definitely, definitely want to have flex time. And I think that when you have social time, that's when flex time is extra important because if things are going well, socializing is happening, people are connecting, they don't want to stop and you don't want them to stop. That's the whole reason why you're meeting in person. Yeah. Um, and so you want to bake that in. That's that's such a good point. Uh, Jared, we have to wrap up with some questions about you as a human being sure. so that we know a little bit about, about yourself. Uh, I'm just going to throw them out. You just answer what first comes to the top of your brain. So the first one is, what is your favorite part of the day? Probably the morning time. Not that I have a strict morning routine, but I have building blocks of a good morning. And uh, yeah, I like getting a little run in. 
Um, love coffee. Have like four cups a day, um, probably. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just like uh, getting into it. What is something that makes you little kid happy? I guess besides coffee, now that we know that you love coffee. Uh, well, I didn't drink coffee as a little kid. That'd be <laughs> pretty dangerous. <laughs> but uh, I'm a big basketball fan. Uh, so I follow like the NBA religiously, probably waste way too much time on NBA.com and ESPN. But um, I'm a diehard Miami Heat fan and love love checking in on the games and all the storylines. Like, you know, it, it, I spend too much time on this, but played as a kid and, and it's uh, an outlet for me, I guess, question mark. uh what book are you currently reading or what audiobook are you listening to uh i'm finishing up uh a book called 100 million dollar leads from alex hormozy who's uh like one of the top internet marketer you know internetpreneurs right now um seems super cheesy and internet markety as a person but like has some really good content um i don't know him personally but Learning a lot from that. Uh, and then yeah, I'm trying to look at like my desk. Um, <laughs> I was uh, finishing up Five Dysfunctions of a Team from Patrick Lencioni. Um, at some point, may want to have my team go through that with me. And then was also taking some elements of that and putting it into an agenda template that I published uh, a couple days ago, which is uh, an executive team retreat agenda template. Nice. Well, this is the next one. This is not a normal rapid fire, but as a three-time published author yourself, what would you say is the hardest part about writing a book? The mistake I made with my first two books is having a non-commercially viable title. Uh, so uh, my my books, I, I'm biased, but I think have all been really good to read, but people do judge books by their cover. And so like my first book is called Two Billion Under 20, uh, how millennials are breaking down age barriers and changing the world. And like 2 billion under 20 is cute slash creative. If you consider that there's 2 billion people in the world at or under 20 years old and like try to inspire the generation, but like no one knows what that means. Uh, <laughs> and then I did it again with 3 billion under 30. Um, so my, my third book I called networking, uh, it is about networking. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know if that's the world's best title either, but like, Definitely spend a lot of time thinking about your title and your cover uh, if you're going to write a book. Uh, and then with networking, uh, I decided to write that book because I had a decade of podcast interviews, articles, uh, online courses I'd attempted to create around networking and relationship building. I was like, oh, it'll be easy to have it all transcribed and put into a book. Um, but then I wanted to write a book that people would read and like you have to not only have good content, but you have to make it entertaining, like back to the sort of speaker thing. Uh, and so adding back in anecdotes uh, to bring the book to life and then adding in uh, interviews and ideas from other networking and relationship building experts. Uh, there's like all these layers that I added in that hopefully made it a, a good content to like good book. Uh, and so I, I think that's something I wasn't thinking about beforehand. I just took a bunch of tips away for myself, put them in my back pocket. Um, what is the best purchase you've made under $50? Uh, my back hurts right now. So I got like tennis balls that I'm using is sort of like uh, to like rub my feet on. Uh, it's like when you're in pain, oh, those are uh, that could be yep. you know, a nice uh, adjustment uh, before you get the adjustment with the chiropractor. Um, 
fifty dollars. I mean, I I run through headphones, so maybe, maybe I should just spend more than fifty dollars and get like great headphones. But I'll I'll spend uh, money three or four times a year on like fifteen to twenty dollars headphones. Um, I'm sure I have better answers. Um, what maybe no, one that's, that's more practical is like uh, the cable that you use to charge your phone. I have like yes. eight foot long you know cables. Uh, so I have that's my little a great cube. one. Yeah, I have my little yes. Cube. And then I yes. have, uh, I don't have any around me, but I have, I have the cube that you have. And then I have like these eight foot long cables. And so, uh, and I'll use them to travel and whatever. So it, that's amazing to just like be able to charge a phone and have it in bed or like go to a hotel and be able to you know, yeah. just survive and, and thrive. Yeah. Totally. That's actually, so that's reminding me what I need to get. Um, what's the most important lesson you've learned so far in your life? <laughs> Yeah, things are hard ones. Uh, I would maybe go with like most things are figure outable and like there's not uh, any, there's very few like truly irreversible decisions. And so uh, I have definitely, and that that brings with it a lot of humility and also a lot of confidence. Uh, so like for running a company, it's like you just make the most educated guess you can about a certain direction to bring the business. But like you can always change the OKRs. You can change the business name. You can change like most everything about the business, including all the employees. You could replace yourself if you wanted to. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know if we can curse on this show, but I can uh, and give you my new Go favorite saying, like a bonus. Uh, Go yeah. for it. Um, I've been jokingly saying lately that I don't know shit about fuck and <laughs> <laughs> I don't know fuck about shit. So uh, <laughs> like literally we're all figuring it out. Um, which is also cool because it's it's confidence inspiring that no one else knows what they're doing. Uh, and so yeah. why can't you be the one to build that company or run that marathon or do whatever you want? Uh, so I've been able to take on some cool adventures, uh, like starting new hobbies. I got into like jujitsu uh, a year ago, which is part of why my back hurts. But that's been a lot of fun. And I didn't grow up thinking I would do that. I've run ultra marathons. I've you know, started businesses like did ted talks blah 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 um but like those are all things that like other people have done and like you can do it too and like uh it also is humbling because uh even if things are going amazingly well like something tragic challenging can just be on the other side of that um like i 28 at the time of recording i've been both married and divorced like i didn't expect to get divorced <laughs> when i got married but like that happened and then you just you deal with it and so yeah, whatever I said two minutes ago, I'll stand by it. <laughs> uh, That's so good. Sometimes you just have to take that leap and just know that you can just try it yeah. and you might Everything fail at it, but that's okay. And yeah. you know, very few things are irreversible. Um, that's what I said that I thought might be smart. Uh, <laughs> um, the last question here for the rapid fire questions is, Jared, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I think I'm doing it. Like I, I, uh, Entrepreneur. Uh, and I, I don't think I'm going to stop anytime soon. Like I, I think all the personal and professional challenges I've had in, you know, my early years and like they're relative, like they're, everyone has like, I would gladly take my life back if like everyone put their cards on the table and challenges and whatever. And like, I, I would pick up my problems again and, you know, run with those, <laughs> but you know, for whatever challenges we've had, I love running a business. Uh, and I think it'll just make me a more savage entrepreneur when I'm in my fifties and sixties. And so, uh, 
I definitely am doing what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, and I'm just really excited to see where I can take this current business and then uh, what lessons I'll take to the next business as an operator. Uh, see what I did there? And uh, you know, I saw it. I saw it. Uh, yeah. And then, <laughs> then uh, trying to figure out the, the hobbies on the side, like uh, keep doing random cool things uh, that have interest to me so that I'm not so one dimensional. And you know, I want to be able to look back on my life and have a cool life resume that includes writing lots of books, I guess, and uh, doing these ultra marathons. And maybe one day I'll get a black belt and jujitsu. And like, yeah, I've, I've like joked yeah. with friends about like learning music production. Uh, and not just DJing, but actually like making beats. Um, like who knows, maybe I'll do that in like five, 10 years. Like I have no idea. Um, but everything's figure outable, I guess. <laughs> Question mark. Everything so, is figure outable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now before we officially wrap up, if people are hearing what you're talking about, they're, uh, resonating, everything you're saying is resonating with them. Where can they find you? Where would you like to point them? Yeah. You can email me, Jared at offsite.com. Uh, if you have interest in working with us, happy to give you a 10% discount on your first contract with Offsite. Um, just tell us um, that Ariana sent you or Secret Ops sent you. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can just go to Offsite.com for that. Uh, we also have uh, free to use software in that marketplace. Uh, so you can work with us for N10 Offsite planning, or you can use the marketplace like you would use Airbnb and uh, happy to have you there either way. Amazing. Jared, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this topic that I feel like goes under the radar, but is so, so important, especially now in today's world. Just thank you. I really appreciate your knowledge and yeah. your expertise and your humor. Thanks for the uh, the rapid fire questions. <laughs> I have me questioning every aspect of my life now. Yes. Um, I, I even let you go on some of the harder ones, but we'll come back to them for part two. Part okay. two, we'll do the next round. Um. Of course, listeners, thank you so much for listening to Secret Ops. Please remember to follow us wherever you find your podcasts. We're also on YouTube now. And uh, check us out at secret-ops.com. We'll see you next time. Hey, listener. Do you want to be a top operator in business and in life? Well, we at Secret Ops are here to help you do just that. Check out our monthly Secret Ops newsletter with exclusive intel just for you. From bonus content to secret resources, we've given you the VIP access. To sign up, check out the link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening.